I invite you to open up your Bibles this morning to 2 Samuel chapter 21. 2 Samuel 21. For our study today, it's not an easy chapter. We uh, read the verses but skipped right by it on Wednesday night. And I told told those gathered Wednesday night that when we come across hard teachings in the Bible, I always feel like it's more important when the teachings are difficult that the entire fellowship gets to hear and be involved. So we're going to study this these 14 verses through together, and I will warn you ahead of time, this is tough stuff. So let's see what the Lord has to teach us. 2 Samuel chapter 21, verse 1. Now there was a famine in the days of David for three years, year after year, and David sought the presence of the Lord. And the Lord said, It is for Saul and his bloody house, because he put the Gibeonites to death. So the king called the Gibeonites and spoke to them. Now the Gibeonites were not of the sons of Israel, but of the remnant of the Amorites, and the sons of Israel made a covenant with them. But Saul had sought to kill them in his zeal for the sons of Israel and Judah. Thus David said to the Gibeonites, What should I do for you? How can I make atonement that you may bless the inheritance of the Lord? The Gibeonites said to him, We have no concern of silver or gold with Saul or his house, nor is it for us to put any man to death in Israel. And he said, I will do for you whatever you say. So they said to the king, The man who consumed us, that's Saul, and who planned to exterminate us from the remaining within the border of Israel, let seven men from his sons be given to us, and we will hang them before the Lord in Gabeah of Saul, the chosen of the Lord. And the king said, I will give them. But the king spared Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, because of the oath of the Lord which was between them, between David and Saul's son Jonathan. So the king took the two sons of Rizpah, the daughter of Aiah, Armoni and Mephibosheth, a different Mephibosheth, whom she had borne to Saul, and the five sons of Merab, the daughter of Saul, whom she had borne to Adriel, the son of Barzillai, the Maholophite. Then he gave them into the hands of the Gibeonites, and they hanged them in the mountain before the Lord, so that the seven of them fell together. And they were put to death in the first days of harvest, at the beginning of barley harvest. And Rizpah, the daughter of Aiah, took sackcloth and spread it for herself on the rock from the beginning of the harvest until it rained on them from the sky, and she allowed neither the birds of the sky to rest on them by day nor the beasts of the field by night. When it was told David what Rizpah, the daughter of Aiah, the concubine of Saul, had done, then David went and took the bones of Saul and the bones of Jonathan his son from the men of Jabesh-Gilead, who had stolen them from the open square of Bethshan, where the Philistines had hanged them on the day the Philistines struck down Saul and Geboah. He brought up the bones of Saul and the bones of Jonathan his son from there, and they gathered the bones of those who had been hanged, They buried the bones of Saul and Jonathan his son in the country of Benjamin and Zelah in the grave of Kish his father. Thus they did all that the king commanded. And after that, God was moved by prayer for the land. Ouch. (laughs) Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. And we recognize that nothing is in the word that you did not ordain to be there. And we accept that fact. We don't always understand. And Lord, this is one of those times we come to a passage like this and we say, what in the world are you trying to say to us? And how, Father, could you allow all this to happen and play into it and and require this? And Lord, we need understanding this morning. And so we pray 
Jesus, that your spirit will teach us and speak to us. We pray this all the time, Lord, but especially this morning, would you clear our minds of preconceived notions as to how you're supposed to be, Lord. And may we enter into better understanding of your nature and your character. And Father, as we do so, I pray that you would equip us so that we would go out of this place with a sweeter knowledge of Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Well, scientists tell us that floods and famines and earthquakes and tornadoes and hurricanes and tsunamis, at least today, the buzzword is they're all part of climate change. It's because of the changing climate that these natural disasters happen that culprit global warming remains at the front of the headlines. In fact, I I was interesting, in between, the first service didn't get this, but I was reading something at home this morning, in between services about green Christianity, about, oh, that's interesting, we're talking about that a little bit this morning. There are two groups in evangelical Christianity, apparently, that are very much at odds right now, and have been for the past couple of years. They've been having conferences and press releases, and they're going kind of head-to-head. These two groups are called the Environmental Climate Initiative, which is spearheaded by Rick Warren, Leif Anderson, Jim Wallace, Bill Hybels, and they advocate immediate carbon emissions reduction. They're asking U.S. leaders to pass laws requiring businesses to reduce emissions, encouraging churches and individuals to purchase energy-efficient appliances and vehicles. Energy-efficient churches, we would be in bad shape. (laughs) But their whole call is to be proactive. Measures taken today will lessen the potentially devastating effects of global warming. On the other front, in evangelical Christianity, is the Cornwall Alliance for the Stewardship of Creation, which is headed by James Dobson and Chuck Colson. And they acknowledge the possibility of global warming, but believe in natural factors, that natural factors, not necessarily human activities, are the primary cause of what's happening. They also say, Pat, maybe we should wait a little longer to see if there are benefits to this warming trend, so-called, that we're not aware of right now. Their stance is be prudent, saying hasty action without thorough study might cause bigger problems than we currently have. I think it's a little ironic because that is so how we humans work. We jump to it quickly and end up making a bigger mess of things than we had in the first place. Well, regarding global warming, this just out last week, out of the National Post from Canada, February 25th, 2008, snow over North America and much of Siberia, Mongolia, and China is greater than any time since 1966. The U.S. National Climatic Data Center reported that many American cities and towns suffered record cold temperatures in January and early February. According to the NCDC, the average temperature in January was 0.3 degrees cooler than in the entire century average of 1901 to 2000. China is surviving its most brutal winter in over a hundred years. Temperatures in the normally balmy south were so low for so long that some middle class cities went days and even weeks without electricity because once power lines had toppled it was too cold or too icy to repair them. Interesting. They go on to write that in just the first two weeks of February, Toronto received 70 centimeters of snow, dashing the record of 66 centimeters for the entire month set back in the pre-SUV, pre-Kyoto, pre-carbon footprint days of 1950. And remember the Arctic sea ice? 
The ice, we were told so hysterically last fall, had melted to its lowest levels on record. Never mind that those records only date back as far as 1972. <laughs> and that there's anthropological and geological evidence of much greater ice melts in the past. The ice is back. Giles Langes, senior forecaster with the Canadian Ice Service, which sounds to me like a very exciting job. <laughs> in Ottawa, he says the Arctic winter has been so severe the ice is not only recovered, it's actually 10 to 20 centimeters thicker in most places than it was at this time last year. It's got to be driving Al Gore nuts. <laughs> and it's not just anecdotal evidence that's piling up against the climate change dogma. According to Robert Cogweiler of the Geophysical Fluid Dynamics Laboratory at Princeton University and Joe Allen Russell, Assistant Professor of Biochemical Dynamics at the University of Arizona, two prominent climate modelers, they say our computer models that show polar ice melt cooling the oceans and stopping the circulation of warm equatorial water to northern latitudes and triggering another ice age, they said we're all wrong. Our models are wrong. The very models that they use to say we're in trouble are wrong. Kenneth Tapping of the National Resource Council, who oversees a giant radio telescope focused on the sun, is convinced we're in for a long period of severely cold weather if sunspot activity does not pick up soon. The last time the sun was this inactive, Earth suffered a little ice age which lasted five centuries and ended in 1850. Crops failed through killer frost and drought, famine, plague, war were widespread, harbors froze, so did rivers, and trade ceased. Interesting stuff. I just like to bring this stuff to you. And I don't want to get all political this morning, but the reality is, gang, I think that there is an arrogant assumption behind the global warming agenda. Now, if you happen to be all for global warming, I'm not up here to get in an argument this morning. I do believe that Christians have been given a responsibility of stewardship over the earth. I believe that the church actually should be leading the charge for taking care of the planet as overseers like God has given it to us. However, the problem that I have with the global warming agenda is not the science, it's not all the other stuff, it's the arrogant assumption that we as mankind have the power to affect massive change worldwide. I don't believe we do. It's this idea that you and I can alter the course of created world. That somehow we've got the whole world in our hands. Back in 1950, it was the number one hit song for a while in America. He's got the whole world in his hands. People were singing it. I sang it in public school. You can get kicked out of public school for singing that song these days. But in the 50s, the country at least acknowledged there was something with this God who oversees, this creator who we worship. That maybe the reality is not that you and I are doing something to mess up the world. Maybe the reality is it's in God's hands. And I want you to understand as we study through this this morning that something I think we give up way too easily as Christians is the idea that God is in control. That He is God over creation. We have a thing that, that we do, um, again, as believers. We say when bad things happen, we say, well, the Lord just allowed it to happen. It makes Him sound so impotent, and it makes me angry. The Lord allowed it to happen. The hurricane, oh, it just got out of His control. The tsunami spun beyond His ability to hold it back. Do we believe that about God? Or do we believe, as the Bible teaches, that He is almighty, sovereign, creator of the world, and He still has a hand in this world? I'm sorry, but I don't believe planetary disturbances accidentally get away from the Lord. 
or climatic turmoil is a sudden surprise, as if God is sitting there with the angels and going, Oh, wait, what? There's a tsunami. Who, who missed that? Call a staff meeting. There's a hurricane in the Gulf. I didn't know about this. Why don't you tell me these things? As if he's caught off guard. My friends, nothing can happen apart from the Lord. Jeremiah said in Jeremiah 32 verse 17 Ah Lord God behold you have made the heavens and the earth By your great power and by your outstretched arm Nothing is too difficult for you Who shows loving kindness to thousands But repays the iniquity of fathers into the bosom of their children after them Oh great and mighty God The Lord of hosts is his name Great in counsel, mighty in deed Whose eyes are open to all the ways of the sons of men Giving to everyone according to his ways And according to the fruit of his deeds Who has set signs and wonders in the land of Egypt And even to this day in both Israel and among mankind And you have made a name for yourself as at this day Do you believe that or not? Do we accept that God still has a hand in the world or not? Or do we look back at the writings of Jeremiah and say, well, maybe back in those days, but not so much now. God's really quieted down a bit. God is not so active in the world as He used to be. See, that's our Greek mindset. We've talked about before, there's a vast difference between the Hebrew and Middle Eastern mindset and the Greek or Western mindset. The Western mindset is we've got the whole world in our hands. It's, it's kind of up to us. It all revolves around man. The Hebrew mindset is it all revolves around God. So if there's something going on, the question isn't how can we stop it? The question is, Lord, what are you doing? Is it possible that this may be from the Lord? What are you saying, Rick? I'm saying that though it may not be popular science... That it's possible that the Lord still deals with the physical earth in response to man's sin. That there is such a thing as natural disasters for the purpose of national repentance. That the Lord allows, not allows, causes things to happen to get our attention because we are so boneheaded. Because it takes so long for the information to sink into the middle of the sponge, we miss it. Solomon, at the dedication of the first temple in Jerusalem, he prayed, When the heavens are shut up and there is no rain, because they have sinned against you, and they pray toward this place and confess your name and turn from their sin when you afflict them, then hear, Lord, in heaven and forgive the sin of your servants and your people Israel. Indeed, teach them the good way in which they should walk and send rain on your land, which you have given to your people for an inheritance. And the Lord responds to Solomon in 2 Chronicles 7.13. The Lord appeared at night to Solomon and said to him, I have heard your prayer and have chosen this place for myself as a house of sacrifice. If I shut up the heavens so that there is no rain, or if I command the locust to devour the land, or if I send pestilence among my people, and my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven. I will forgive their sins and will heal their land. Was it coincidental? Speaking of tsunamis, that the tsunami of December 2004 hit, the hardest areas hit were predominantly Muslim. Was that a coincidence? Oh, Rick, you're getting judgmental. I haven't even started. (laughs) Or that the greatest famines in the world have happened in the last century, and I'll show you this in a minute, happened in the last century in predominantly pagan or anti-God areas. 
Is it coincidence that the ravages of Hurricane Katrina all but shut down the Mardi Gras of New Orleans and the multiple, multiple casinos along the Gulf Coast? Now listen, and I know I'm treading on thin ice there because some of you have friends and family that were horribly affected and may even still be affected by Katrina. I'm not saying that individuals were targeted, but I am saying maybe we should ask the Lord, what are you doing? Is there something that we need to be awakened to? See, our government won't do it. What our government has done is pour billions of dollars into aid along the Gulf Coast. you know where $80 billion of that has gone? also just learned this this morning. $80 billion of FEMA money has gone to the Gulf Coast for the purchasing of the coast so that once offshore casinos can now be built on the shoreline all along the Gulf Coast. $80 billion. While there are still people who are homeless because of Katrina and have nowhere to go and are living in those little shacks, the government is providing. And they're saying, well, yeah, but it's going to provide jobs and it's going to rejuvenate the environment of the area. Great, as we bring the gambling in. Excellent thinking. Because nobody is saying, I wonder if the Lord was trying to get our attention. Nobody connected, by the way, nobody connected what we were doing to Israel at the exact time that Katrina hit. That's an interesting study, by the way. Look at what's been going on with Israel and the U.S. pressure bearing down on Israel to give up land and see how it has interacted over the last five or ten years with what's been happening in terms of what we call natural disasters in America. Now, I could go on and on about this stuff. And I, again, don't mean to offend anyone. Hey, I'm not also suggesting that we're so righteous and holy up here in this conservative bastion of Christianity in northern Washington. (laughs) I merely suggest that blaming Mother Nature may be missing the boat, that maybe we ought to be seeking Father God, and that's what David does. David sees, he realizes there's something going on. Man, there's famine in the land. Three years of famine. And we're told, and I love this about David, he sought the presence of the Lord. He didn't gather governmental councils and say, how can we respond to this issue? How can we deal with this problem? He said, Lord, what are you doing? Now, it took David a little bit of time, which also gives me comfort because it tends to take me a little bit of time too. This famine's been going on three years before David finally hits his knees and thinks, oh, maybe God's involved. (laughs) Maybe this is, is his deal. It sounds so much like us. We want to assign natural causes so quickly that we miss the supernatural. You know, we make assumptions about things that are, we say it's non-miraculous because we don't want to accept or see the miracles. And we're so quick to give human reasoning to things that I believe we miss the supernatural happening all around us all the time. When the earth shakes... Sometimes God is just trying to get our attention. How would you do it? If you were God, how would you get the attention of unbelieving, rebellious man? I'm not talking about any number of Christians who are sitting in church on a Sunday morning and God, God has your attention right now. It's a good thing. But what about all the people who reject God and don't want to even believe He exists? How is He going to get a message to them to say, Look, I can save you. What's He going to do? Start raining Bibles out of the sky? Oh, okay, I believe! You know? How does a Creator God reach into created world and get the attention of His creation? Hebrews 12.25 says, See to it you do not refuse Him who is speaking. For if those did not escape when they refused Him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape who turn away from Him who warns from heaven. 
And his voice shook the earth then, but now he is promised, saying, Yet once more, I will shake not only the earth, but also the heaven. We miss what God is doing when we are not looking for God to do it. When we want to assign natural causes for supernatural things. David finally seeks the Lord only to discover the famine truly is the judgment of God. It says, The Lord said in response to David, verse 1, It is for Saul and his bloody house because he put the Gibeonites to death. Famine is synonymous with judgment in the Bible. Again and again we see famine hitting and it is connected. The Lord uses it for judgment. In the 20th century, an estimated 70 million people died from famines across the world. Of whom an estimated 30 million died during the famine of 1958 to 1961 in China. The most other notable famines of the century included a 1942 to 45 disaster in Bengal. Famines in China in 1928 and 42, the Biafran famine of the 1960s, the disaster in Cambodia in the 1970s, the Ethiopian famine of 1983 to 1985 that many of you probably remember, and the North Korean famine of the 1990s. And by the way, every one of those famines took place in areas that were predominantly anti-God or wholeheartedly pagan. Is it possible God is saying... I'm going to get your attention one way or another. Might there be a link? I know this is hard to accept sometimes intellectually. And it was, ah, I don't know, that's, that's a little spiritual and out there, Rick. And I believe the Lord would say, I'm going to get your attention. One way or another, I am going to get your attention. God brought judgment to Israel by famine. So we have example, biblical example, that he's done it before. And the Bible says in Hebrews, he will do it again. Well, this is hard stuff for us faith-wise. Our Oscar Milktoast Christianity doesn't like the idea of suffering. You know, I don't like the thought that maybe someone's in pain if I can do something about it. And so we immediately jump on the bandwagon to fix the problem. What if David, instead of responding and seeking the Lord, what if David had just opened up all the temple warehouses to bring more food to people? Well, we've got we to gotta take care of them. We need, to, we need uh, a stimulus package. Is what we need right now. We need an Israeli stimulus package to get this economy moving because we've got it well in hand. So let's do something. What if Noah, when God told him the flood was coming, instead of building the ark and preaching judgment, what if Noah had spent the whole time on, I don't know, a global wedding campaign? It's going to get wet real soon. The rains are coming, so we've we got to build, I don't know, houses on stilts. It's a great idea. We need to send aid to places that are going to get hit hardest. We need to prepare ahead of time. And sometimes, gang, relief can detour repentance. And this is a hard one. I, I talked to some people after first hour for a while about this. One of the toughest things to deal with in a church setting and in leadership is the area of benevolence. Right, Rod? It's tough to deal with. Because you have to make decisions about, well, you know, I mean, here's, here's someone who needs some financial help. Do you help? Do you not help? I'm so thankful that we have elders because I just stay out of it, you know. Someone says, that, oh, Rick, I need a little Go see Rod, go see Rod. You know? <laughs> so I just stand back from it. It is very difficult. On a personal level, gang, a brother or sister is going through hard times, and I hear this all the time. Well, the church needs to do something. Possibly. What if the church shouldn't do something? 
What if the hard times that someone has fallen upon is God doing something and by us helping, we get right in the way? Now, please understand, because I know some here have been helped financially by the bridge, a bill has been paid, a mortgage, whatever, and and in most cases we desire to do that, but I'll tell you what, there's something always done first that must be done first before we get into relief efforts or helping anyone. Do you know what that is? Seek the Lord. Pray. Ask Him, do you want us to do this? Now, if you've been helped by, by, by the bridge financially, let me just tell you, it's probably because the Lord said, this is how I want to help. This is the way I want this to be done. And so I, I encourage you that if you have been helped or you will be helped in the future, receive it because it's the Lord. But understand, it's not just a blank check that gets written. And we have a problem with this in our personal lives too. We have friends or family members going through hard times and they say, can you give me some help? Can you give me some money? We call it codependence. And we get involved helping, 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 helping. And meanwhile, the Lord's going, as long as you keep helping, this person is not going to reach the place where I can reach them. We're going to get in the way. We have spent billions in tax dollars for AIDS relief in Africa. And we feel really good about it. My friends, I know this is not politically correct, but might AIDS be judgment? For what's going on? How about spending billions on teaching people in Africa about sexual abstinence? How about starting before the problem gets rolling on and and then giving compassion and mercy and grace wherever we can? Uh, You know, we are called as Christians to be compassionate. But I'm telling you, most of the time, that's the easy thing to do. It's easy to write a check and go, what a good person I am. My mom was right. You know, I am a good guy. And Paul says in Galatians 6.10, while we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. But prayer must always be our first response. Before we meet the need, we bend the knee. Before I say, all right, I'll write the check, I'm going to check with the Father and see what He would say. Lord, am I to step in and help? David sought the Lord. And we've just got to not move according to our feelings. Or even others' apparent needs, we've got to ask the question, Lord, what are you doing? And as Les likes to say, how quickly can I align to that? David sought the Lord. And he prayed only to discover the culprit behind Israel's famine was a previous grievous sin committed 40 years earlier. Verse 2 says, so the king, you're saying, verse (laughs) 2. So the king called the Gibeonites and spoke to them. Now the Gibeonites were not the sons of Israel, but the remnant of the Amorites. But the sons of Israel had made a covenant with them. But Saul had, had sought to kill them in his zeal for the sons of Israel and Judah. What's going on here? The Gibeonites were a people, and some of you Bible students may remember this, back in Joshua chapter 9. Uh, Joshua comes into the land with the people, Israel, and they're driving people out right and left, and they're doing a great work, and they're very powerful, and the hand of the Lord is with them, and it is a hand of judgment. The Gibeonites see him coming, and they say, okay, we've got to do something, because he's going to wipe us out. There's no way we can fight. So they dress themselves up in raggedy old clothes. They got old moldy bread. They took provisions and sandals that were worn out and made themselves look like they had traveled from a far place. And they came to Joshua. And they say, you know, we're, we're distant travelers. Now, we don't live nearby or anything. They were just a few miles up the road. But we don't live nearby. So make a covenant of peace with us. And so Joshua and his men didn't pray. 
they provided. They made that covenant only to find out that Gibeonites had lied to them and were inhabitants of the land. But now they had made a covenant. So what are they to do? Well, the Lord said, you, you, you keep the covenant. And so they kept the covenant, but the Gibeonites became servants of Israel. And later when the temple was built, they would be hewers of wood and drawers of water. And they would bring this up and they would provide and, and do a lot of work there in the temple. But apparently, apparently during Saul's reign, he decided he needed to wipe them out. He was maybe looking for some political capital, you know, to try and get the people of Israel behind him. And so he said, let's go to war and let's take out the Gibeonites. They're easy. We can take them out quick and they'll look good. And so he sought Gibeonite genocide. He sought to wipe out a people. And here we are 40 years later. Saul's already dead. 40 years later and the Lord is dealing with Israel. Why? Why didn't he deal with Saul right when it happened? Why would the Lord wait 40 years to come and handle this? And I'll tell you very simply, in the character of God and the nature of God, patience. The Lord is incredibly patient with our sin. Why did God wait 400 years while the people of Israel were in, uh, in Egypt? Why did he wait 400 years before executing judgment on the Canaanites? Because he's patient. For 400 years they had opportunity to repent to the Lord and they chose not to. This is why the Lord continues to show up with every generation, not just then, but now. Exodus 25, we've read this several times recently. I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children, on the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing loving kindness to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. God is perfect justice, perfect mercy. He's not just a little bit of either one, or more one sometimes and more one the other time. He is always 100% perfect justice and always 100% perfect mercy. Generation after generation, God visits each of us, each person, to see where our hearts are at. Are we following the sins of our fathers? Or are we following the Lord? Perfect justice. Perfect mercy because He shows loving kindness then, grace, to thousands of generations who just will follow Him. In 2 Peter 3.9, the Lord is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. Truly, it's been said, the wheels of God's judgment turn slowly, but they grind thoroughly. And so God will be patient, but He will bring about justice. And that's what's going on in this chapter. Verse 3, Thus David said to the Gibeonites, What should I do for you? How can I make atonement that you may bless the inheritance of the Lord? And the Gibeonites said to him, We have no concern of silver or gold with Saul or his house, nor is it for us to put any man to death in Israel. And he said, I will do for you whatever you say. So they said to the king, The man who consumed us and who planned to exterminate us from remaining within any border of Israel, let seven men from his sons be given to us, and we will hang them before the Lord in Gibeah of Saul, the chosen of the Lord. And the king said, I will give them. Now this is the part we get into and go... I don't know if I'm comfortable with this. I mean, this sounds like one of those old kind of pagan rituals. Throw the virgin into the volcano to appease the fire god, you know? Let's cut down seven guys. Let's hang seven guys and that'll appease God's wrath and God's anger. And I read that and I think, God, that just doesn't sound like the God of the Bible. I mean, this is the kind of thing that fuels the fire of people who say there's an Old Testament God and there's Jesus and they're not the same guy. (laughs) Yes, they are. Yes, they are. And if you don't believe that, look at Jesus on the cross taking the full wrath of God. In fact, there's not a picture of wrath in the Old Testament that comes close to the cross of Jesus. Let me get a little ahead of myself here. 
A couple of things I want you to realize as we study this to understand this story. Number one, the punishment was left up to the law. We have to remember and recognize Israel was under law, we are not. But they were under law. And the law stated that you shall appoint as penalty a life for a life. If this man is murdered, the murderer must give up his life as payment. That was the law. Exodus 21-23. Numbers 35-33 says, You shall not pollute the land in which you are. For blood pollutes the land. And no expiation can be made for the land for the blood that is shed on it except by the blood of him who shed it. You see, when we read this story, we kind of say, wow, those seven sons are grandsons of Saul. That's that's not fair. They have to pay the sacrifice for their their father's sins. They have to now go and, and, and be an offering. That just doesn't seem right or fair to me. Well, if you're going by the book, by the law, then every Gibeonite murdered should have had an Israelite executed. In this case, there's only seven. There's mercy, even in this Judgment, even in these seven guys being taken up, being being killed. The letter of the law. Think about it. How many Gibeonites did Saul kill? He sought to exterminate all of them. It was a complete genocidal act. How many did he kill? Let me ask you a more personal uh, or a more relevant, immediate question. How many people here were upset by the hanging of Saddam Hussein? Oh, you uncompassionate. <laughs> Not even one. Or more re- recently, who's upset by the death sentence that's been given in Iraq to Chemical Ali? Remember Chemical Ali? Fox News tells us Ali Hassan Amajid was one of three former Saddam officials sentenced to death in June after being convicted by an Iraqi court of genocide, war crimes, and crimes against humanity for their part in Operation Anfal that killed nearly 200,000 Kurdish civilians and guerrillas. We don't even know how many Gibeonites were massacred by Saul. We don't know the number. In fact, if not for this passage, we wouldn't even know. If if the Lord didn't come along 40 years later with this judgment of famine, we wouldn't even have known that it had happened. But how many did Saul kill? We also don't know this. We don't know who was involved in the genocide. It's entirely likely, though I can't prove it, that these seven men were chosen out because they led the charge and they were involved in the genocide. That they had hands to the swords of the killing of Gibeonites. So the punishment was left up to the law. But number two, the punishment, and this is interesting to me, the punishment was left up to the Lord. This word hang that's used in the chapter a couple of different times. They say we will hang them, verse 6, before the Lord in Gibeah of Saul. The word hang is the Hebrew yakah, which literally means to expose. To expose. Now it is connected to judgment. Eight times this word in the Hebrew is used in the Hebrew scriptures and it's connected to execution. But read this way, it sounds as though the judgment was not in the hands of the Gibeonites. That it was in the hands of the Lord. That read this way, it would say, we will expose them before the Lord. We will tie them to these seven trees and leave the judgment up to God. And that would make some sense if you look back at verse 4. The Gibeonites said we have no concern of silver or gold with Saul or his house, nor is it for any of us to put any man to death in Israel. And yet they turn right around the next verse and they say, Oh, yeah, give us seven guys, we'll hang them. You just said you didn't want to put anyone to death or that you didn't have the right to do that and now you're asking for hanging. It's possible, it's possible that they're talking about exposure. We will put these guys out and let God do the judging. 
Now, if you're still struggling with the harshness of this judgment, remember there are many facets of this story that we can't possibly work out. And we're not going to completely understand. But we do know this. God is 100% just and He's 100% merciful. And I invite you to be among those who embrace that ahead of time, even when your life doesn't seem so fair. And even when your life doesn't seem so full of mercy. Because in a great scene yet future, we will cry out, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God because, because His judgments are true and righteous. And what happened in my life, Lord, I didn't think I deserved it at the time, but now I see, wow, you were right. You were right. There was something going on there that I wasn't paying attention to. You were trying to get my attention. Now I understand. Now I see. And I'll tell you what, if you die in the Lord or you are called up when Jesus comes, you will be among those who declare His righteousness and His justice. You will know God was perfectly fair. Well, watch what happens here. Going on in verse 7, But the king spared Mephibosheth, which Hannah was really happy to hear. When you're talking about this, she said, she said, He didn't kill Mephibosheth, did he? No, he didn't. He spared him because of the oath that he had with, with Jonathan. Verse 8, So the king took the two sons of Rizpah, the daughter of Aiah, Armoni, and Mephibosheth, whom she had borne to Saul, the five sons of Merab, the daughter of Saul, whom she had borne to Adriel, the son of Barzillai, the Maholophite. And then he gave them into the hands of the Gibeonites, and they hanged, exposed, them in the mountain before the Lord, so that the seven of them fell together. Seven men, biblical number of completion to complete the requirement for justice here. And they were put to death in the first days of harvest, at the beginning of the barley harvest. Israel suffered a natural disaster and a call now to national repentance. But we need to get personal with this game. What about personal disasters? What about the famines that strike your life or mine? Maybe like David, you've, you've felt this. Is it possible there's famine in my life because God is calling me to personal repentance? Is it possible there's famine in my life because I am making decisions and judgments that are absolutely outside of His will? Is it possible God is trying to get my attention? David said in Psalm 38 verse 3 there's no soundness in my flesh because of your indignation there's no health in my bones because of my sin mark that gang if there is sin in your life unchecked unrepented sin your bones start to rot away it digs at you it will not get better until you give it up for my iniquities are gone over my head David says Oh, it's a heavy burden. They weigh too much for me. My wounds grow foul and fester because of my folly. I'm bent over and greatly bowed down. I go mourning all day long. Maybe you're in mourning. Maybe you're depressed. Maybe you're struggling. Feeling there's a lack of soundness in your flesh. And wondering why your wounds are not healing. What do you do with that? I'll tell you what you do. There is only one answer to dealing with it. And Dr. Laura is wrong. <laughs> just this last week, a guy calls up and goes, Dr. Laura, yeah, I, I, I want to know how do you get rid of shame and guilt in your life? How do you get rid of shame? And her answer was, well, you shove it away and put it in the past like all the rest of us have to do and you just move on. And I thought, yeah, right. You're getting rid of your sin just as easy as we got rid of these birds. That thing didn't work, did it? Yeah. Start wearing a hat again. She said, you just push it down. That's how you deal with shame. No, it's not, because it will rise up again. 
And yet the Lord says, Goodness sakes. I'm recording this and there are people listening to this who are going to say, What was funny about that? I don't know. You don't see the birds dropping stuff on us. Okay, there we go. Where was I? Oh, the only answer for your personal famine, for my personal struggles and sin and stuff that just is eating away at me, there's one answer to it, and that's expose it on the tree. Expose it on the tree. Hanging up our sin on the tree of Calvary, the cross of Jesus Christ, He redeemed us from the curse of the law, Galatians 3.13. Having become a curse for us, as it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. That's why we take communion every week. It's why we keep coming back again and again and again to the cross of Jesus Christ. Because unless we repent and give our sins to Jesus to be dealt with at the cross, our sins will dog us and we will live in shame. The famines will continue. And we will go hungry. But the problem is, far too many people in Christ play the part of Rizpah. Look at verse 10. Rizpah, the daughter of Aiah, took sackcloth and spread it for herself on the rock from the beginning of harvest until it rained on them from the sky. She allowed neither the birds of the sky to rest on them by day nor the beasts of the field by night. What is this talking about? Rizpah camped out for six months on the rock there in front of these dead rotting corpses this is where she spent night and day for six months until the rains finally came she stayed there because I gotta gotta keep the birds off the corpses I gotta keep the wild animals away from the corpses because I don't know I gotta protect them I gotta take care of them and we attend to our sin the same way gang I gotta protect this old dead thing in my life I don't want to lead it to exposure. Maybe it'll get completely taken away and then I can't be the victim that I like to be. I've got to hang on to it. I've got to protect it, look after it. Gang, when we attend to the sins of the past, reviewing them in our minds again and again and again, we are playing the role of Rizpah and it is not a role that we have been called to play. David hears about this and he says, you know, it's time to bury this thing. It's time for us to be through. Verse 11, it was told David what Rizpah, the daughter of Aiah, the concubine of Saul, had done. David went and took the bones of Saul and the bones of Jonathan, his son, from the men of Jabesh-Gilead, who had stolen them from the open square of Bethshon, where the Philistines had hanged them on the day the Philistines struck down Saul and Gilboa. He brought up the bones of Saul and the bones of Jonathan, his son, from there, and they gathered the bones of those who had been hanged, which tells you the kind of state they were in after six months. And they buried the bones of Saul and Jonathan, his son, in the country of Benjamin and Zelah, in the grave of Kish, his father. Thus they did all that the king commanded. And after that, God was moved by prayer for the land. The curse was paid for, paid out on the tree. Now it's time to bury it. Now it's time to take the old bones of those old sins and put them away, never to be resurfaced, never to be remembered again. Micah 7.19 says he will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. Listen to this. You will cast all their sins into the depths of the sea. If you are a Christian and you've given your life to Jesus Christ, your sins have been paid. So don't wallow in them anymore. And if you're struggling with something right now, man, repent. I've said before, repentance is not a bad word. Repentance is a good word. It's a freeing word. It's a refreshing word. Then turn to God and say, okay, I'm a loser, I admit it, here's what I've done. And he goes, great, what did you do? It's over. 
Isaiah 38, verse 17. Hezekiah has, has gone through quite an illness, an illness that was to death, and he prayed for forgiveness, and he repented, and the Lord extended his life. And he says, Lo, for my own welfare I had great bitterness. It is you who has kept my soul from the pit of nothingness, for you have cast all my sins behind your back. Sheol cannot thank you. Death cannot praise you. Those who go down to the pit cannot hope for your faithfulness. It is the living who give thanks to you as I do today. A father tells his sons about your faithfulness. The Lord will surely save me. So will we play my songs on stringed instruments all the days of our life at the house of the Lord. The answer to personal famine. The answer to personal sin and struggle and sickness and even death that's hanging there in our lives. The answer is expose it to the cross of Calvary and bury it. That's what the Lord does. At the cross, the justice is satisfied. At the cross, there also His mercy is yours and mine in Jesus Christ. And by the cross, we see at the end of this, the last few lines of this, verse 14, God was moved by prayer for the Lamb. This does not say God was appeased by the sacrifice. For in reality... No sacrifice could possibly appease the justice and mercy of the Lord until Jesus was sacrificed on the cross. But it does tell us that he was moved. He was moved by prayer for the land. So something else began to go on after these men were given to the Gibeonites. People started praying. People started taking it back to the Lord. People recognized where the famine had come from. And they returned to him on their knees. Let's do so this morning. Father, we bow before you and we repent of our sins. Lord, I pray that we don't repent generically. It's too easy. Would you this morning call our hearts to repentance? Lord Jesus, there are some marriages in this church that are in trouble. I pray you would call husbands and wives to repentance. Father, there are some personal decisions people are making related to drugs and alcohol. And I pray that you would call individuals to repentance. God, there's there's slander and there's mistrust. And there's gossip I pray that you would call it to repentance and we're going to take a few moments here and, and bow in silent prayer and I invite you to ask the Lord to search your heart maybe there is something in your life that is unrepented of something that's going on you're, you haven't even really paid attention to probably because if you're anything like me you just don't want to deal with it Father, I pray you would call these things to mind that we might be called to repentance. In Jesus' name.